Well, the subject today is uh, God's will for my life. I was playing darts with some friends recently, and, uh, and as I was considering on the one hand of my brain God's will for my life and for ours, and playing darts, I thought, how often we approach God's will for my life, God's will for our lives, uh, as though it were some sort of dart game. And I had a moment of brilliance, which then obviously wasn't a moment of brilliance. <laughs> and I thought, what about putting a big dartboard on the front here? And then I thought the points that I wanted to make from the sermon were maybe going to be too many as the darts came in. What a lovely prayer time we've just had. Thank you. That's beautiful. Decisions, decisions. Like everybody else in the world, followers of Jesus are confronted every day with a number of decisions, aren't we? Each of these decisions typically carries a number of options. You know, there's a whole management process in how to deal with how to deal with uh, making decisions, uh, probability, all sorts of things like that. Now, often the decisions that we uh, have to make are not very significant. Uh, things like, what should I eat today? Hopefully there's something in the fridge. Uh, what should I wear today? Hopefully I've ironed the piece of clothing that I need. And do I have fries with that? deep things of life <laughs> but at the other end of the scale there's many big, big questions that we need to decide uh, things like what career should I have who will I marry should we have kids did we talk about this before <laughs> we, we got married <laughs> what sort of house can I afford and in the present market can I afford a house at all all people find themselves buried under the onslaught of questions, options, decisions. But those of us who claim to be Christians have a different perspective, don't we? Because all of the questions that we have in our lives lead to one big question. What is God's will for my life? And of course that leads to a, another big question. How do I find God's will for my life. Um, I don't know whether you've done what I just suggested and got out the dartboard <laughs> or stuck the piece of paper on something and, and, or tossed a... Even, even in the Bible, they threw a, a, a dice to find out who should be the next disciple. I'm not suggesting that's the way we go, but that's what they did. So how do I find God's will for my life? But then I thought, are these the questions that we should actually be asking? I wonder whether our fixation on finding some very specific answer keeps us from finding the satisfaction that we all desire as followers of Jesus. And that is because knowing and trusting God is far more important than using some mechanical formula to get easy answers and quick shortcuts that obviously you and I would prefer. So what is our task? 
You know, there's a Baptist catechism, and it was introduced by the Baptists of Great Britain in 1689. And the Philadelphia Baptist Association in the US adopted it in 1742. That's going back a few years, isn't it? And it's patterned on the very well-known reformed Westminster Catechism. So as we hone in on what is my life supposed to be about, question two in that catechism says, what is the chief aim of man? And the answer is, man's chief aim is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And it goes on later in the catechism to urge its readers to, from 2 Peter 3.17, keep growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit wants us to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. And we honour that desire of the Holy Spirit in what we say we want to be as disciples in this church, of what we say we as a church are actually all about. And we become effective in our calling when we allow the Spirit to have full access to our lives. You see, God's ultimate concern is not actually about getting me and you from point A to point B along the quickest, easiest, smoothest route available. Rather, his ultimate concern is, as I've reinforced earlier, know him more deeply and trust him more completely. And as we do this, we are positioned to start helping other people to know him more deeply and trust him more completely. Psalm 9.10 says, Those who know your name trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. And Psalm 119.66 says, Teach me knowledge and good judgment, for I trust in your commandments. And I pause just a moment here and and ask you, what has helped you most when it came to knowing God more deeply? Sometimes it's just pausing. Sometimes it's just spending time in the, in the bush or at the beach and just saying, God, I just appreciate so much being with you. What helped you most when it came to trusting God more completely? Even now, as I speak, there are people in this church who are struggling with things, with health, with financial issues, with getting lodgings for a home. What helped you? I think it's an encouragement to remember that becoming a disciple of Jesus means that Jesus transforms not only our minds and emotions, but also our wills. There's a tendency to think of ourselves as being so independent that we are affected emotionally by things. Our minds are busy with things. But perhaps we fail to realize that because we have given our lives to Jesus, he is also transforming our wills. Increasingly, our desire is to do what God wants us to do. 
Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And it's easy to say that, isn't it? And say, well, Paul said it, and I confess it. But what about in the actual working out of that in life? Paul also taught the believers in Rome that this dying to self is precisely what baptism is about. In Romans 6, he says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, as it were? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live. As followers of Christ, we seek direction from Jesus. And Paul, for example, told the Corinthian believers, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Whom you have received from God? And then he says something a little harder, but also more reassuring. He says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. That's from 1 Corinthians 6. So how does this play out? Obviously, we need to be better people, but there are other sides to this question. Matthew 6, 24 says, No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. That verse is talking about money, but it's talking about money because that reflects who we are and how we're living our lives as Christians. You see, there's a definite choice to be made. We can't just float. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 to 5 says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, the image of God. For we preach... For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. So the other side of it, another side of it is that it's not about self-actualization. There are some places in, in the Christian faith where people preach and you would think that it's all about becoming a, a higher, more divine personality. And really, that's a very New Age thought. And it's a New Age thought which is rooted in very Old Age religions. But you see, from 2 Corinthians 4, we see that it's not about self-actualization. It's about Jesus. In Philippians 2, 5 to 11, in your relationships, we did this series not that long ago, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. It's about humility and our humility in a response. And in John 5, 19, 
Jesus gives this answer. Verily, verily, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees his Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. So just as Jesus did only what his Father called him to do, we are called also to model the same, to do only what he calls us to do. He sets the mission agenda for our lives. He sets the mission agenda for our church. Instead of concentrating on trying to do God's will in the sense of trying to force ourselves to hit some specific target, think of that dartboard, I missed again. <laughs> I'm going for the center, but I missed again. <laughs> and I remember when I was in the uh, training with the army, uh, with the 303s and a few other things in the early days, um, missing quite a few, gradually getting to the center. So a specific target. I encourage you to do something much simpler and yet more profound, and that is to surrender everything. If I had my dartboard here, instead of bearing the darts and arrows, it would be as though I, I turned it over and said, God, it's all yours, not just the core, not just the center I'm trying to hit through my own strength. It's all yours. I surrender it. But surely there are some measures, some indications of what it means to be surrendered to God, to live as a disciple, to live our lives to create other disciples of Jesus. Well, recently we looked at Micah 6, 8, which says this, What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. So a life surrendered to Jesus will bear the marks of justice and of mercy and of humility. But wait, there's more. You see, we have a task and we have the available power to fulfill that task. And I'll just reflect briefly there on the readings from Matthew 28, where Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. And secondly, Acts 1, where he says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And there you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to all Judea and Samaria, from here to there to everywhere, and to the ends of the earth. In both cases, Matthew 28 and Acts 1, God's direction and empowerment were not only for the original disciples. And I think that's wonderful as we face our own decisions and try to find our own identity as believers in Christ. You see, just recall that. It said the Great Commission was until the very end of the age. Now, we are not yet at the very end of the age. 
And he said that he would be with us until the end of the age. So wherever we live, whoever we marry, whatever job we hold, as believers, we are given direction and empowerment. And both become available and active through surrender. And the wonderful thing that that does is that in a sense, when we surrender to God, it relieves us of the anxiety. Because you see, when we surrender our lives totally to him, it's his responsibility now to bring that fulfillment through us. Yes, we need to continue to be surrendered, but he now has the responsibility for it. Our responsibility is to say yes and amen to the one who is the yes and amen. And not merely in acquisition of knowledge, as wonderful as that is, but in our actions, including our speech. As followers of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, we have responsibility to live as witnesses. We have a responsibility to testify to who Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus did, what he continues to do, and how he saves. With this, we provide an invitation to others to accept his offer of abundant life. And in the process of offering this to others, do you know what? Our own lives become still more abundant. There is a joy in this. And part of the reason there's a joy is because we have surrendered the process to God. And God in return says, now I have responsibility for this, and I will use you. But I'm not just going to cast you out there and say, there's the job, go and do it. I'm going to equip you for it. And I will be with you till the end of time. So we're on a journey with God as he reaches out to the world. And what a wonderful journey that is. There are many things we can do to witness about Jesus to our friend out there in the community. You can begin by saying that you trust God. We all have trust God, I hope, or at least we're on the way to that. Or you've found truths in the Bible. Or that you've been comforted in hard times by God's sustenance and intervention. It may be giving a meal to someone. It may be waving a John 3.16 sign at the tennis or the, or the cricket. <laughs> And, you know, those are all good things. It may be praying for someone who's going through hard times, and that's valuable. But we also need to share the good news about Jesus verbally. There's no escaping it. A witness is someone who also shares the gospel verbally. If our faith is authentic, then we should, should be able to include it as a natural part of our conversation taking the opportunities as they arise, and even making opportunities. And if we need confidence, we can pray about that. We can surrender again. There are courses that people can do to make it easier and give them more confidence. One of the best things you can do is read the Bible more because it will give you confidence in what God is, who God is, and what he wants to achieve. And as we look at the Old Testament, we find... Examples of 
people who, once they've given their life to God, are given the Spirit. And following being given the Spirit, they speak. So in 2 Chronicles 24.20, for example, it says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon Zechariah, son of Jehoiah, the priest. And he stood before the people and said, This is what God says. And he talks about this disobedience that they have. And he warns them that they will not prosper while they do that. In Ezekiel 11.5, it says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon me, and he told me to say, This is what the Lord says. There are many similar examples in the Old Testament. I'm sure you can remember many yourself. And we see something similar in the New Testament, don't we? When people submit their lives wholeheartedly to God, they are empowered by the Spirit and they speak. Even people who you would think would not be courageous, would not be out there, are not the people that you and I would choose. Suddenly, empowered by God, they speak about God. In Luke 1.39 to 45, for example, we read that Mary got ready and hurried into the town in Judea where she entered Zechariah's house and she greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby inside her leapt in the womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit and in a loud voice she proclaimed, Blessed art you among women and blessed is the child you bear. In Acts 4.31, it says that they prayed and the place where they met was shaken and they were all filled with the Spirit and the Word of God was spoken, dot, 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 boldly. I'm sure that those disciples, we know that those disciples were not in a courageous state of mind at that time. But they waited on the Lord, they gave themselves to the Lord, they prayed, the Spirit came upon them, and they spoke of God boldly. In Acts 4.29, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And the fact is that they did. Even though Jesus ascended to heaven in Acts 1, he continues to work by his Spirit in his followers. He empowers them to proclaim. Now let's look more at how things are, I suppose, in our society and in churches. Some people say, I share the gospel when the Holy Spirit leads me. So it's like I'm walking along and boom, suddenly the Holy Spirit hits me and... You know, or I get a sudden leading. And there's some truth in that. We want to be led by the Spirit in everything, don't we? And at the same time, we need to remember that the Spirit lives in us for the explicit reason of talking about God, talking about Jesus and spreading the gospel. So you may not be feeling very courageous. Uh, you may know for a fact that you're not an evangelist, but if you have the Holy Spirit in you, then you are officially approved and empowered. It doesn't depend on your feelings. And other people say, I don't witness with my words, I witness with my life. And once again, there's something true in that, isn't there? You know, we, we, 
we are called to live a life that imitates Christ. Uh, we are to be clear about our actions. But Jesus told his disciples they'd receive the Holy Spirit and they'd be witnesses not only locally, but as I've said before, locally, regionally and globally. He wasn't just calling them to be nice people. And although it's good to be a nice person, and it is not a part of the Christian life to be a nice person, that's not the full assignment. He was calling us to share with words that he will activate to bring people to him. You see, the Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus. The Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus with us. Isn't that wonderful that we have not been left alone to the task? You probably know theologian and pastor John Piper. And John Piper is not a radical by any means. Um, he says that if there's no words, there's actually no gospel. The effectiveness of the gospel depends on our words, empowered by the Spirit. And without those words, the possibilities are cut short. Piper says, The glory of Christ is the goal of God in the world and the work of the Spirit. Jesus said in John 16, 14, When the Spirit comes, he will glorify me. He won't glorify uh, us. It's not, a, not a, a possession to make me or you great. It's something to glorify Jesus. And this unites all the other things that God wants to do in us. Romans 1.5 says, We have received grace so as to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of the name of Jesus. So Jesus magnified among the nations is the work of the Holy Spirit. And he aims to do that through you and me. Piper adds, God has highly exalted Jesus and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. There is a time when every knee will bow to Jesus. So, and he says, so when we lift him up in our words, the Holy Spirit this is his little character coming into it. So when the, the Holy Spirit, uh, when we lift him up in our words, the Holy Spirit has a big smile on his face and says, that's what I want to do. I want to get into your life and I want to make him look great. That's my job. You can't do that. Just lift him up. So we can write poems about Jesus. We can lift him up. We can write songs about Jesus and sing about him. We can preach sermons about Jesus. We can share about him in small groups and be encouraged. We can go out in the community and share it as, as we are able. But people will not see Jesus as great unless the Spirit does it. And the Spirit will not do it except through us. He's given us that task. We work together. You've probably heard the popular quote about St. Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary. 
it has a pleasant ring to it, doesn't it? And uh, it looks very good as a Facebook meme. And I've even seen posters of it. But the sad fact is that St. Francis never actually said that. <laughs> it's an internet invention. Mark Galley, who is managing editor of uh, Christianity Today, said that Francis, in fact, was quite a preacher. And he asks us to consider the preaching of people like Jonathan Edwards or Billy Sunday. I've seen sketches and etches of Billy Sunday, and he would have been standing on the top of this, <laughs> shouting and saying, repent, bring your life to Jesus. Now, I'm not suggesting that you and I be like Billy Sunday. <laughs> I don't think I could be like Billy Sunday. <laughs> it's just not me. <laughs> but, uh, but his words, Mark Galley says, were filled with power of the Holy Spirit, penetrating into the marrow of the hearts so that listeners were turned with great amazement. Clearly, he had a great a deal of time using his words. When he preached, he preached sometimes five, five times a day in villages, often outdoors. And it says that he was very animated and passionate in his delivery. And it says his feet moved as though he was dancing. I'm convinced that St. Francis of Assisi was really a Baptist, on fire with the word and the spirit. What do you think? Francis never claimed actions alone were a substitute for words. But what he was really saying is that the way that you behave needs to be consistent with the message that you give. Returning to John Piper, he says, Now, of course, 1 Peter is full of commands to do good deeds so that people will, just, will glorify God. But Piper adds, but that is because of what it says in 1 Peter 2.9. And you may remember this. You are a chosen people. You, you here, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. I just happened to be one of those people who was called out of darkness and into his wonderful light, and I am eternally thankful for that. And I'm sure that many of you have had that experience, and it, it's reassured within you because you have the Spirit. Scripture tells us that the, the Spirit within us is the assurance that we are saved. But I would add that the spirit within us is also the approval of God upon us to do a task. And as the Holy Spirit is also the empowerment that we need to do that task. Do good deeds, but don't forget that words are needed as well. Talk it up. Do it. The Holy Spirit delights to magnify Christ in the mouths of believers. I guess we need to understand that we have responsibilities. We need to understand that the Holy Spirit wants full access, full access within our lives. And that's essential to the success of our lives as disciples of Jesus. And it's essential to the ministries of our church. Romans 10:14 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And literally that means a good news sharer. Because if we read that verse just using the word preacher, it's like we say, well, that's, that's just, there's one person in our church who <laughs> can do it. And that's not true. Because God hasn't just empowered a preacher to preach. God has empowered all of us to share. And certainly there's different ways of doing it, according to our personality, our gifting, and all the other things. But we are all good news sharers because God has chosen that we should be. So in conclusion, let's get to know God more deeply. Let's trust in God more completely and let's use our words. Otherwise, we're going to try to hit that target of God's will without his involvement. And that's going to be unsatisfying. It's going to be unsuccessful and it won't do the job. Also, otherwise, we're trying to achieve something that is a supernatural task in our human natural strength. And guys, that simply will not work. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you have given us a gospel to believe, opportunities to share, a spirit to empower, and a language to speak for that purpose. Like the early disciples in Acts 4, we ask you to enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness, boldness that we may have not previously known, but we stand here and accept that we will have boldness and we will have wisdom and we will speak it out because you have already equipped us and you will be with us and we will see people brought to Christ, we will see the church added to and we will enjoy personally and together great joy. We surrender our lives totally to your son Jesus. Holy Spirit, come and fill us now with power to proclaim the greatness of our wonderful, beautiful Lord Jesus Christ. We love you, God. Amen.